0: In August of 1920, just nine months before the infamous Tulsa Race Massacre, the class divisions in Tulsa were starting to reach a fever pitch. After the end of World War I, the streets of Tulsa were awash in oil money and the wealthy and powerful of the day were hell-bent on retaining their power over the day laborers that worked in the fields. One way they did that was to declare a war on crime that specifically targeted vagrants and the unemployed. On the same day the war on crime was announced, a cab driver named Homer Anita was brutally assaulted and left for dead. The media firestorm that followed whipped the city into a frenzy and a young man named Roy Belton was arrested for the crime. After a series of suspicious events, Belton was given over by the police to a large, angry mob and publicly lynched for his crime, a crime he insisted he didn't commit. Our guest today is Randy Hopkins, a lawyer and historian who has written a series of stories for the Chronicles of Oklahoma and the Center for Public Secrets. Hopkins discusses his account of the Belton lynching from his recent article, Racing to the Precipice, Tulsa's Last Lynching. Our host is Michael Mason.
1: Welcome to the Center for Public Secrets podcast. Uh, on this episode, we'll be discussing Tulsa's Last Lynching, a, a historical article written by uh, Randy Hopkins, uh, who has also written uh, other uh, historical uh, articles that have appeared in the Chronicles of Oklahoma. Randy, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: All right, uh, we're going to be, uh, you know, going through the the last lynching in Tulsa, and this occurred approximately nine months. Uh, before the Tulsa Race Massacre, uh, this is Tulsa in August of 1920. Could you tell us a little bit about what Tulsa was like in
2: 1920? Tulsa had, uh, up to that point, recovered quite nicely from um, uh, World War I mm-hmm. and the, all of the social and economic dislocations there.
1: Uh, it it had been booming from a lot of oil wealth yes and so it was prospering
2: yes extremely so and there had been no immediate financial depression Mm. when the war spending ended Uh, although that was beginning about the same time as the lynching in late 1920 uh, the beginnings of an economic depression Mm. uh, were coming on uh, price of oil was beginning to weaken um, but uh... But by and large, Tulsa was still floating along.
1: But socially, there was a lot of tension, right? Yes.
2: Of course, there— where,
1: always... yeah, where did it come from?
2: Uh, class, class differences. Mm. Uh, you'll see in this story um, uh, denigration of the unemployed. Uh, they were deemed loafers. Mm. Uh, denigration. Uh, uh, the gentleman who was lynched here was white, so it mm. wasn't all racial— Hatreds, but they were there too. Uh,
1: but there was also a, a sort of uh, political uh, tension too. Uh, you know, vigilanteism, for yes. example. Right? How, where was that coming from?
2: The uh, a standard theme during the nineteen tens in Tulsa was um, uh, kind of an ongoing war on crime. Mm. At every election, the the. Uh, The people out of party were claiming the incumbents had been soft on crime, Mm -hmm. so there were uh, just a whole series of wars on crime that were being undertaken, and one of them coincided with this luncheon.
1: Just a a year and a half or so before this uh, lynching, there was a a terrible... Act of uh, vigilanteism that uh, we discussed in another episode, uh, the Tulsa outrage. Yes, uh, could you give us a quick overview of that? Sure. In order to
2: whip people into a war frenzy, uh, the uh, upper echelons of Tulsa society had paraded a series of exaggerated enemies before the public, and a major enemy were was union organizers. Hmm. And in uh, an event called the Tulsa Outrage, uh, 17 of these men were uh, taken out into the countryside, whipped, tarred, feathered, and run out of town. Mm -hmm. And this was ballyhooed uh, in the press Mm -hmm. uh, as a good thing.
1: Mm. So there was a a sort of uh, open uh, sense of violence and um, angry rhetoric, right? And it
2: was encouraged, yeah. inflamed and promoted.
1: Mm. So it's in this context that, um, you know, in August of 1920s, uh, a terrible crime ensues. Can you tell us about how that, uh, that crime begins?
2: Yes. On um, the same day, perhaps coincidentally, that the... Uh, Tulsa Police Department had declared another war on crime. Uh, they said they were going to sweep the city so clean that it would look like it had been treated by an electric vacuum cleaner. A, uh, a Tulsa cabbie, 25, Homer Nida, had picked up uh, a fare, two men and a woman, and uh, was taking them to Sepulpa. When... Uh, under certain cir- murky circumstances, a gun was pulled. He was pistol whipped, shot, left beside the road dead, and they stole his vehicle. Mm. And uh, he lingered near death for a week, which meant that the event stayed on the front page of the papers.
1: Shortly after Javier uh, is shot, uh, there's an arrest.
2: Yes. Uh, A somewhat strange young man. He was uh, reported as 19, probably really 20, uh, giving his name as Tom Owens, uh, was hitchhiking out of town, uh, talked to excess, fell under suspicion, was arrested and sent back to Tulsa. Mm. He was taken uh, that night, Sunday, before uh, uh, Nita, who was in the hospital, and uh, Nita fingered him as the shooter.
1: Now, um, at the same time that this is transpiring, uh, Tulsa had just uh declared a war on crime, right? Correct. And uh, in, a, in addition to crime, they also declared a war on undesirables. Yes, who were those undesirables?
2: Anyone who couldn't show a job, um. Uh, they were deemed loafers. So if, if they
1: didn't have proof of employment? Yes. And uh, so basically a war on the homeless and the unemployed. Yes. Right at the start of a depression? Yes. Okay. So it's, uh, uh, Tulsa becomes an awfully uninviting <laughs> place for the, the homeless and the unemployed. Uh, and was there a sense that belt and fit into one of these categories?
2: Uh, Part of what focused public attention on it is that he was such an odd guy. Uh, In fact, during the course of the week, there were speculations that he was going to plead insanity. Mm. And I think it was one of the triggers for the lynching because people thought he was going to get away with it.
1: Mm. Now... uh, in the middle of this week, uh, the paper, which is you know the Tulsa World, which is normally pretty inflammatory and incendiary, um, sort of uh, you know they are covering the story and they are you know uh, dramatizing it, uh, but the editor is is away for the time being, right? Uh, Eugene Lorton.
2: Uh, yes. I think coincidentally, he actually returned to town around the same weekend as the shooting.
1: Yeah, so he—yeah, I I believe it's on the 26th that he gets back from uh, vacationing in Arkansas, right? Yes. All right, so um, in order for us to really, like, understand the— uh, intricacies of the story, you know, we have to get to know a little bit about uh, the the police and the sheriff. Um, could you tell us a little bit about uh, who they are and uh, their roles in this?
2: Yes, the police chief was uh, John Gustafson, mm-hmm. who uh, ran a detective agency downtown, and uh, has a uh, uh, a fairly bleak repu- reputation. Mm -hmm. He was uh, a centerpiece in the examination of Belton. Uh, It's clear uh, they eventually got a a, uh, confession from him under the threat that he was going to be lynched. Mm. And they promised him that if um, he confessed, they would make sure he was safe.
1: Mm. And, And then... There's also James Woolley, right? Yes,
2: the sheriff, mm-hmm. uh, uh, sort of an old-time good old boy.
1: Yeah, he's a, he was a friend of Tate Brady's, right? Tate Brady and Buck Lewis. And Buck Lewis, yeah.
2: Uh, and uh, just to add— uh, And
1: Buck, Buck Lewis was basically the head of the uh, Tulsa Council of Defense?
2: Yes, they were both involved in the Tulsa outrage.
1: Right, right, okay. All right. The, so, violent, a, yeah, violent a,
2: men. If I can just add, Wooly was very close um, uh, to the Va- Dawson family. His his wife was a Dawson. Buck Lewis's mother was a Dawson, and they were all living near Dawson, Oklahoma.
1: Okay, so you've got you've got two uh, pretty aggressive <laughs> men at the at the head of uh, Tulsa's law enforcement, um, and you've also got the city itself declaring a war on undesirables. So Roy Belton uh, is is in the crosshairs. Yes. Okay. Uh, Can you take us uh, into the hospital on um, August the 28th, where uh, Nita uh, is uh, dying?
2: Uh, well, needed needed dies, <laughs> right. and and uh, that happened, and so they immediately took this trio that had been arrested and uh, charged them with his murder. Okay. Um, but but it, it, his death had been eagerly anticipated. It was it was waited on with bated breath
1: because it was his health was being reported every day in the papers. Yes, yeah, yes. And so immediately upon his death, they. Um, they take the three people involved, and uh, and do they do they um, form a grand jury? Is that what happened?
2: No, they uh, they simply uh, uh, they charge them. You could indict someone through a grand jury, or the county, the city attorney could file an information. Okay. So it never reached a, a grand jury at that stage.
1: Okay. But uh, one of the people charged, in addition to Belton, is uh, George Moore, correct?
2: Yes, and he was never captured.
1: He was never captured, but he was the the neighbor?
2: Uh, what had happened, uh, after uh, Belton was arrested, he first said he was innocent, and then he pointed the finger at a Tulsa woman named Marie Harmon. Mm-hmm. So they dragged Marie Harmon in and... Her story was that um, she was sharing a rooming house with another young man, uh, in addition to her husband, named Raymond Sharp, and Sharp introduced her to Tom Owens, and on that fatal Saturday, when Nita was shot, Owens purportedly said, let's take a driving trip to Dallas, and... uh, She claimed that they were going to Sepulpa to pick up a car Mm -hmm. to drive to Dallas when, to her shock and dismay, uh, Nita was beaten and shot. Uh, The young man, uh, Sharp, was also arrested. Uh, And most of this week when uh, he confessed as well, he was suffering from uh, acute appendicitis and was in pain and had to be carried on a stretcher to a lot of these events. Uh, Moore was also involved, but he'd left town, and no one ever found him.
1: So, so even though he was charged, he bolted? Yes. Okay. Uh, so, what it seems like is that, uh, is that there, was, there was some sort of love triangle uh, transpiring <laughs> in there somewhere, and that... And that maybe this was some kind of crime of passion in some way.
2: There is was an allegation that Marie Harmon had been involved in a, in an earlier thrill killing, mm. um, and uh, nothing came of that. Once Belton was lynched, uh, everybody sort of dropped all the subjects. So we don't know the exact true story of Nita's shooting. Uh, but the very mystery of it and the exotic enticement was a thing that captured the public's attention.
1: Well, part of the reason that we don't know really what happened in that homicide is because uh, the investigation and the trial was rather expedient by today's standards.
2: Well, there was no trial.
1: <laughs> okay. No,
2: no one was ever tried for to shooting. As it turned out, no one was ever tried for Owen's murder, as it turned out, which is one of the factors that led to the Tulsa Race Massacre. Because not only was there vigilante violence and lynching, but everybody got off with it.
1: So it was... uh... Not terribly uncommon to not have trials. I guess.
2: Well, it, uh, they would have had a trial had he had he stayed alive. Uh, the indictment comes first, and there's prelimin- pre- preliminary proceedings, and eventually they would have tried him, and undoubtedly he would have been convicted.
1: But why why was there no trial in this case?
2: Because the he was lynched the same day he was indicted.
1: And how did that happen?
2: Uh, There were rumors of lynching that had been live during the week. And then when Nida died, everybody, everyone, that's an exaggeration, but many people expected there to be a lynching. Uh, uh, Marie Harmon was said to be in terror of it so much so that she could not attend uh, the hearing where she was indicted.
1: So there was a sort of a bloodthirstiness. Yes, uh, and everyone knew it. And uh, were the papers uh, encouraging that?
2: Not at the time. They really didn't have to. Uh, But the the clear talk on the street expected that. At one point, Woolley, that morning, was getting his hair cut, and they were asking him if there's going to be a lynching.
1: Was, Was there a sensibility among uh, the, the law enforcement, the, you know, they just needed to take justice into their own hands?
2: I think given their own words, they wanted to send a message. They wanted a precipitous uh, punishment. They didn't want to see him get off. Uh, at the time, Tulsa juries were viewed as extremely lenient. Mm. And uh, then you also had this insanity matter and there were allegations that uh, Belton Owen's uh, sister was wealthy, and she was coming to town. So um, uh, there was just a confluence of events that. Uh,
1: but what what was the message that they were wanting to send?
2: Crime doesn't pay.
1: Okay, so they uh, on, on the day of the lynching. Uh, do they even tell uh, Belton what's going to happen?
2: He already knew. Um, moments before he was taken, he, uh, he um, said, well, handcuff me and give me a gun, and I'll shoot it out with him. He was said to revel in the idea. Hmm. Um, and Marie Harmon, uh, Sheriff Woolley later claimed that she was so scared her hair turned white. Hmm. And of course, Sharp was still writhing in agony from appendicitis.
1: Um,
2: and suddenly, the way that evening, the way was cleared for the lynching.
1: Well, you say it was uh, the way was cleared, but uh, there's uh, there's a in this event, there's an interesting precedent, which is that they. Law enforcement knows that they're supposed to keep uh, someone in jail to prepare for a trial, uh, but in this case, uh, you know, uh, the jailers um, knew that there was, you know, interest in this uh, case. They knew that uh, a lynching was possible. Uh, because that had been happening throughout Oklahoma, right?
2: Well, their knowledge of it was so much that during the week, Sheriff Woolley claimed that he had laid in two special armed guards in the guard in the jailhouse as a way to head off lynchings. So they were they were aware of the risk.
1: So, so Alfred Brophy, the historian, has written before about you know uh, the lynchings going on around the US and in particular in Oklahoma leading up to the race massacre and uh, and it was maybe not frequent but uh, fairly common that someone would be jailed and then a mob or you know a group of people would break into that jail take the suspect out and um, and lynch them
2: yes and it would, and those got front page coverage when they happened
1: yeah bypassing justice and so so Tulsa's law enforcement were already anticipating that this was the way Belton was going to be treated was it uh, just performance pardon what, were the uh, you know were the jailers just performing was it false security
2: yes um The lead uh, night jailer uh, was pretty clearly in on it. And um, as I say, Woolly had uh, the, the two special armed guards vanished. They weren't there. Uh, the police themselves had 30 minutes' notice that the mob was coming for him.
1: And this is a you're referring to Wilburn Slick Woolley, right? Yes,
2: that <laughs> one of the one of the sheriff's deputies was his 18, 18-year-old son Slick,
1: <laughs> and Slick
2: was in the in the jailhouse when this went down.
1: It's quite a name for a corrupt jailer. <laughs> <laughs> the
0: Center for Public Secrets. Tell stories from the real TOSA. Hard-hitting history, investigative reports, exhibits, and podcasts that take an unflinching and uncensored look at what makes TOSA, TOSA. Support our mission by shopping exclusive new merchandise at the Public Secret Store. Limited edition t-shirts, accessories, books, and zines from the real TOSA. Available now at centerforpublicsecrets.org slash shop. Shop now and save 20% on your order with the code podcast at checkout. That's centerforpublicsecrets.org slash shop with the code podcast. Let's get back to the show.
1: So Belton is, uh, you know, he's he's in jail at the uh, courthouse, correct? Yes, uh, in downtown Tulsa, and there's an orchestrated uh, attempt to get him out of there. Yes, what what did that look like?
2: Uh, allegedly, the group that was uh, centered around were the disgruntled taxi cab drivers. Uh, the tax, taxi cab drivers over the years had been caught between the police, who accused them of promoting uh, illegal booze. Mm-hmm. And the highwaymen who were constantly robbing them. And uh, in fact, the the alleged ringleader of the taxi drivers was a, uh, the man who this trio had originally targeted to take his cab because he had a Cadillac. Hmm. And uh, out near what is now Swan Lake, the uh, the the mob, uh, taxi drivers probably, organized, and then headed downtown.
1: So what the public sensed was that there were a bunch of pissed-off taxicab drivers that wanted to go after Belton and exact their own justice.
2: Yes. Uh,
1: what happened when they arrived at the jail, the mob? Uh, uh,
2: they uh, uh, Wooly had arrived at the jail, made no attempt, saw— The gathered crowd that was well-armed made no attempt to disperse them beyond a little jawboning, went inside the jail, waited for them to enter, walked back out to confront them unarmed, and they quickly got the drop on him. He uh, marched them up the stairs, ordered Belton to be released to them, they took him down in a, in a big gala ceremony which was witnessed by an audience of thousand or more that was watching. He was loaded into Homer Nita's car, which had previously been in police compound, and taken out for a uh, for a huge parade.
1: Uh, wow. <laughs> it's just uh, hard to fathom. So the jailer effectively just handed uh, – Belton over to the mob yes the mob uh, takes him out parades him through town where do they take him?
2: out near the uh, point where Nita had been shot near Red Fork Mm -hmm. and they got him out and they had a a mock trial and then they made a a discovery that no one had, had brought a rope so they shoved him back in the car and the parade continued anew They eventually found a rope, uh, found a hanging place, and conducted their ceremony. I've left one salient point out. Uh, Belton was apparently drugged while he was in the jail, which made him compliant with all of this. Mm. They shot him up with dope.
1: Wow. So... When the mob gathers uh, for the lynching, um, are, is there a, a police presence there? Uh,
2: well, yes. Eventually, the police arrived. Coincidentally enough, um, well, Woolley, who gave a deposition afterwards, claimed that he had called the police for help. Mm. John Gustafson had very publicly announced that uh, the police are standing by to prevent a lynching. And uh, uh, they didn't show up. The first two police officers to arrive after Belton had been removed were, for some reason, the only two black officers on the force at this time. So they let them take point in confronting what presumably was a dangerous mob.
1: Wow. And so the mob, uh, you know... Eventually comes up with the rope, and uh, they uh, set up, I guess, a noose from a tree?
2: Uh, From an advertising sign, Federal Tire. And by the time they're doing that, according to Gustafsson, most of the Tulsa Police Department is present. He orders them to stand down, so instead of preventing the event, they manage the crowd and the traffic.
1: How did they – how did Gustafsson explain that?
2: Uh, we couldn't do anything for fear of hurting all the innocent women and children who were in the audience. By the time this was being undertaken, there was probably a crowd of 2,000 people described as being from all walks of life.
1: So there, he was basically saying we, there's no way that we could have prevented this uh, – Lynching, because to do so would have resulted in, you know, injured people in the crowd.
2: Yes, so-called innocent Yes, because the the uh, the taxi drivers are, the takers of Belton were themselves armed.
1: So they decided to become complicit. Yes, in the lynching. Uh, what did that What did that ritual actually look like?
2: It, it looked like a, a giant stage play. Um, they had—the uh, lynching site was on a rise. Mm-hmm. There was a gully. Uh, the mob was being held back from the lynching site uh, while it was being prepared. Mm-hmm. Then they were allowed to come forward toward the site, again, crowd management, and they watched it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they watched uh, Belton being lifted in the air. Uh, he dangled there for five minutes.
1: Did he have any last words?
2: I'm innocent. He was. He uttered the last syllable while his feet were leaving leaving the ground. Wow. Uh, after five minutes, a, uh, a an ambulance service, which was conveniently on the scene, uh, one of the men came up to him, listened to his heart, and recommended that. They keep him there for another five minutes.
1: So, Belton is pronounced dead. And then, uh, what happens at that point?
2: He's lowered down, and uh, they put him on the ground. And at that point, they let the audience loose. And a, a number of the audience surge forward in great excitement and strip him nearly naked for souvenirs.
1: Uh, so, he had become something of a trophy for...
2: Yes, he was, uh, he was loaded into the ambulance. They took him back to the funeral home and put him on display. There were said to be long lines of people that would come by and look at his body.
1: Wow. How did the, uh, the press respond to that incident?
2: In incredibly so, uh, especially in the case of the Tulsa Daily World. Um, there were two editorials that immediately followed uh, in which uh, uh, garlands of good citizenship were wrapped around the killers. They, uh, the editorial said there was not a whisper of mob spirit. These were outraged citizens uh, performing a just punishment. And the blame was laid on uh, – uh, the world was a Republican newspaper. Lorton at the time was a big Republican. Mm. And it was blamed on the fault of the Democratic Party who controls state government for being lax in the use of pardoning power. So it was politicized and uh, the killers were effectively praised.
1: So outright support for mob rule. Yes. And justice. Killing. And of course, uh, this has—this uh, incident and Tulsa's reaction to it um, echoes uh, into the future. Yes. What, what in your mind um, makes this such a significant story in relationship to the Tulsa Race Massacre?
2: The next time a rumor of lynching occurs— especially with a, a more inflammatory target uh, in the form of Dick Rowland, who was alleged to have attempted to rape a, a young white woman. Um, uh, possible lynching was the first thing on everybody's minds. Mm-hmm. The crowd knew where together outside the courthouse in anticipation of another big show. The, this uh, The Belton Lynching had been the hottest show in town that mm-hmm. night, and the Populace was ready and anticipating another biggest show in town.
1: So it was almost as though the Belt and litching was uh, theater, <laughs> a theater, a practice run.
2: Dress rehearsal.
1: A dress rehearsal. For the...
2: It's more so even than that uh, because uh, after the race massacre, State District Judge Redmond Cole – uh, wrote a letter to his former colleagues in the Justice Department uh, fingering um, uh, the Cranfields. Uh, uh, William Cranfield had been the the targeted taxi driver and was allegedly the ringleader mm. in the Belton lynching.
1: He was the ringleader of the mob.
2: Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, Redmond Cole said it was the same mob that took Belton that attempted entered the courthouse and tried to take dick Rowland. so it was similar casting
1: wow same actors
2: same actors same police chief same police commissioner Gust- different sheriff
1: gustafson uh, and uh, a lot of the same same actors would be present in the massacre yes Okay. Well, uh, thank you so much, uh, Randy, for sharing this uh, incredible story. It helps, I think, us to understand the context of the Tulsa Race Massacre and a new sort of light. So um, we appreciate your time.
2: Uh, It's been great. Thank you for having me. Thank you.
0: That was Randy Hopkins talking about his article, Racing to the Precipice, Tulsa's Last Lynching. Read the article now along with Hopkins' other work at www.centerforpublicsecrets.org. This podcast is presented by the Center for Public Secrets, a nonprofit subcultural institution dedicated to uncovering the hidden and neglected history of Tulsa, Oklahoma, and beyond. To learn more, visit our website at www.centerforpublicsecrets.org. This episode was produced, mixed, and edited by Scott Bell. Our executive producers are Whitney Chapman and Stuart Heatherwood. The podcast art was made by Ryan McGann at Well Told. Our host is Michael Mason. Thanks for listening.